don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, oh, Magic! Hello and very welcome along to the 42 Rugby Weekly Extra. I'm your stand-in host for today, Sean Farrell. And before we get going, I just want to say a sincere thanks for clicking that play button because we know it's not easy diving back into rugby after the devastation Japan wrought on Ireland's World Cup on Saturday morning. Two days on from that shock, the best approach might just be to take some of the emotion out of it with a nice, clean, analytical look at what was a very messy showing. And for that, I'm going to hand it over to Murray Kinsler and Owen Toolan, who linked up to have a chat, little chat on Skype earlier. This podcast is brought to you by Volkswagen, proud sponsors of Irish Rugby. I'll not say enjoy, but we hope it helps. Hello to everyone from Kobe Misaki Stadium. I'm here for the Scotland-Samoa game and it's very humid. Ireland are going to be playing here on Thursday against Russia, so in for a sweaty evening. Owen, how are you getting on up in Tokyo Bay? Still enjoying yourself? Yeah, having a good time, keeping a bit of a, a lower profile after uh, Saturday's result in Japan, getting a few texts from some of my mates in Australia, uh, giving me a bit of stick. So uh, it was good to be able to return the favour last night. I also went to the Australia-Wales game, which is which is a cracking game. So yeah, it was a br- brilliant weekend of rugby. So um, kind of took off from uh, where it left the weekend before. Yeah, it hasn't really let up. Unbelievable competition so far. And even when you're worried that you may be heading towards quieter days, it's been sensational. We'll get into that Australia match uh, a little bit later on, but let's start with Ireland. 12-19 defeat. I think everyone will have read about plenty about it at this stage, but I'm just interested now, your perspective, a couple of days after the game, the co-lighted day, was it as bad as it felt live? Was it as 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 close? Was it closer than you, you felt at the time? Or, or what were the big... Um, the big things for you in, in hindsight yeah it's uh there was a lot to take in from the game i think just even just from an atmosphere perspective of being there i think you probably agree murray it was just uh once once japan got onto a little bit of a roll and, and momentum got behind them just the uh the raucous nature of the crowd a few of my mates were asking me before the game what were the japanese like as supporters and i said oh pretty pretty polite quiet uh <laughs> clap along to any good things but then Geez, I was shocked at just how passionate and uh, raucous they became as as Japan built momentum into the game. But um, yeah, I guess it was a little bit of a tale of two halves, wasn't it? Like w- when you look at Ireland's first twenty minutes, I don't think um, I don't think the players or the coaching staff could have been uh, much happier with how, how they begun. I thought they were supremely accurate in what they did. I think if you looked at Ireland's first two lineout launches. Uh, I think it was a, a 31 pattern and then followed by a 21 pattern where uh, they clearly targeted uh, Tamora back on that, that return side and and got a little bit of pay out of it. And I think they kind of everything they had planned for going into the game was they were getting a good return on. So I thought they start the start they got to the game and then to, to go 12-3 up was probably was really pleasing in that first 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely, and and as you mentioned, those those even the power play to send Gary Ringrose down the right hand side after they'd, mm. as you mentioned, bounced back a couple of times, and then they dummy to bounce back and and slip him down the right hand side with that move they used against the All Blacks back in November, a, a lovely kind of Joe Schmidt power play. And that stage, you feel 
everything's going really well here. There had been a little fright early on, I think, where Lafelli Grubber kicked down the right-hand side on turnover attack, uh, a little bit of a kick exchange, and then he gets on the ball, and, and it looked like potentially a, a Japanese try and, until Stockdale got a nice bounce and, and touched down, but they did compose themselves. I think there were, what, five or six, even seven potentially line-out attacks, and they had so much... Uh, possession and pressure against the Japanese um, it felt like they had taken advantage of that but from there like what for you stands out as, as the things that went wrong I know Ireland are, are looking at a lot of different issues but from your overview point um, what, what, what went on in the last 50 minutes yeah no, like I just going back on Ireland's start I think it's just very important to uh, kind of appreciate how inventive they were on their starter plays as you said they're getting pay the Ringrose try came off that uh, that Gary Ringrose break from the it was like a five phase sequence off a line out, and then their seventh line out was that lovely little uh, mall variation where, to be fair to Japan, they defended Ireland's malls extremely well, probably better than anyone would have expected, and um, yeah. Murray had to take it out the back and play it to Farrell. And when they had done that earlier on, earlier on, Farrell just crashed it up to set a target. But this time they played that little uh, wraparound variation and they went out the back, which was a great sign of some uh, invention from the Irish backline. And then eventually led to Cardi chipping over for Carney's try. So I thought there was a lot of uh, variation and kind of subtlety to Ireland's attack, which was which was really pleasing to see, to see. And then there was actually, I think for me, a probably really definitive turning moment was after that second try. Um, off the restart Japan kicked long again and Cardi hit a sublime crossfield kick um, to Earls on the open wing um, who, who offloaded lovely to Carney and Ireland just seemed to be have a, a kind of wave of momentum behind them but then a couple of phases later Ireland were kind of hot on the attack in um, Japan's half and Furlong kind of looked like he had fumbled the ball to knock it on but actually regathered it and Gardner awarded the scrum to Japan just when it looked mm. like Ireland were kind of at least going to enter into Japan's 22 and, and probably continue to maintain pressure on Japan. And I thought that was a disappointing moment because even as he awarded the scrum, um, there was a replay on the big screen of Furlong clearly regaining possession. I just a little bit inconsistent from the TMOs because at the Welsh-Australia game last night, there was a, there was a, a scrum awarded to Wales for a knock-on. And then it was a replay on the big screen on the TMO intervened to say Wales had knocked on first, so they awarded Australia the scrum. So I think that's just just smart use of the TMO and, and that could have given Ireland a scrum kind of 35 out from Japan's line midfield scrum in an ideal attacking position. So I thought that was probably a frustrating moment that um, the staff would have had with Gardner at that point. And then off that scrum, uh, Japan tried a kind of intricate 11 pattern trying to come back and attack against Ireland's uh, forwards off the scrum and kind of didn't go to plan Inigaki lost control of the ball and Ireland hacked it through and gave Japan um, a rook about 5 metres out from from Japan's try line um, and from that rook Gardner judged Ty Furlong to be offside but it was, he was clearly onside it was a kind of pedantic decision from Gardner and it just gave Japan an easy exit from their 22, which is, a, which is a big moment in the game as Ireland were sustaining pressure. And then kind of from that point, a little bit of momentum started to swing back in Japan's favour. Yeah, they're big moments, but, but like Ireland had another line-out platform very soon after that, where they're inside mm. the Japan half and it's a complete overthrow. Um, gives up three points very quickly. They do have an attacking scrum down on the Japan 22 very soon after that. 
they decide to leave it in and scrummage for the penalty and, and they end up giving up a, a massive penalty, a massive swing of momentum. So definitely while Gardner yeah. was, I agree on those two decisions, he was off, but certainly Ireland still had control of um, just deciding that momentum or, or a big influence on it, probably not just on Gardner. Um, yeah, of, absolutely. Of those two decisions. What, what could they have done? Like, let's take Gardner out of the equation. I think anyone who watched the game can probably agree Ireland got harshly done with a couple of penalties. I think probably you can pick out loads of examples of Japan getting that as well. If it was slightly against Ireland, then listen, that's what happens in rugby. They've been the benefit beneficiaries many times and they <laughs> they cheat just as much as everyone. So I think for us to focus on that, Look, it is, it is one of the reasons, but but it, it would be wrong to wholly and solely focus on that. What could they have done better as a team when the momentum started slipping away? Yeah, and you discussed it there. A little bit of inaccuracy started to uh, come to Ireland's game. You mentioned uh, Rory Best overthrow at the line out that Japan eventually came away with uh, three points. And then Ireland's discipline, there was clearly a few penalties against Ireland, which are correct, which just allowed kind of Japan some entry points into the game. And then I, I think the big the big factor is Japan's attack and how the stretch in their attack really caused Ireland huge difficulties. It was it was, it was pretty apparent being in the stadium, just the sheer amount of width they were getting on their attack and really didn't allow Ireland's defence to get off the line as much as, as probably Andy Farrell would have liked. And I thought they were really smart in how, how they prevented Ireland's kind of fold in defence from kind of happening because anytime Japan kind of came off an edge and ended up about 30, 35 metres in from the from the touch, they'd come back to short side. And what they were trying to do was just condense Ireland's defence and trap as many numbers as they could kind of in that 20 to 30 metre channel and then just tried to play off 10 as much as they can and had some lovely little variations off 10, whether the first forward would tip to the second forward or link out the back to uh, whether it was Tamora or Nakamura, who were kind of interchanging really really nice. He has 10 and 12 going kind of first receiver, second receiver. And that stretch and width in in Japan's attack and that kind of ball movement was beginning to uh, impose itself on Ireland as as it kind of half developed and, and Japan started to kind of control uh, possession and, and territory. Yeah. One of the things I struggled to understand fully was Ireland's kicking game. They had 19 mm-hmm. kicks in this game following up on, on 39 against Scotland. Now, obviously, the conditions were different. They box kicked everything in the second half against Scotland. But they box kick with a lot of success. You did a brilliant article on Conor Murray's box kicking. He kicked 14 times against Scotland. That was down to two in this game against Japan. He only kicked one contestable box kick, which they won back. You talked about Carty's cross kick to Ringrose. He won that back. And Carberry did one other contestable to the far right after he came on. And Keith Earls managed to bat it back to Carney and they broke up field. So we're talking about three major successes there with contestable kicks. I found it absolutely bizarre, really, that they didn't pursue that more. It was such an obvious talking point and Japan had had real struggles in the air in the last couple of games. And I, I would only imagine there was nervousness there. It was just very, very strange to me that Ireland didn't pursue that more aggressively. What was your take on that? To, to the fact that they are such a good kicking team, it's a real strength for them. But in this game, they didn't really use that strength. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, like we talked about Ireland's ingenuity off line at attack, but after that kind of seventh line out, Ireland didn't have another line out attack till I think it was probably late in the second half. 
to about 63rd minute. So essentially from minute 21 to minute 63, Ireland didn't have a have a line-out launch, which um, is obviously an ideal way for Ireland to get into that kind of kicking pattern and, and from a, a structured possession. Um, so mm. essentially how Japan maintained possession and how they kicked Ireland didn't really allow those kind of situations for Murray to box kick off the back of a mall or to set a target from, from a scrum and kick from there. So Japan are really denying Ireland kind of entry points into the game from a structured perspective by by dint of just maintaining possession or by, by kicking to them, uh, by not kicking the ball out of play. Mm, that's really interesting. What about the the increased number of offloads? Obviously, eight from Ireland, Japan only had six. It seemed like Ireland were certainly more willing to release the ball in contact. I know there's one that from Keith as it went to ground when they seemed to think they had a, an advantage for a knock-on from Matsushima, which seemed to rapidly disappear without any advantage. But w- what was your sense of that? It did feel a little bit like Ireland were willing to take more risks than they usually do. And, and that almost fed into the hands of Japan because they love that turnover possession. Did you get any sense of that being a tactic from Ireland or potentially just errors within a frantic game? Yeah, I think probably the latter. It didn't seem to me that there was a kind of um, a focus going on to the game that, that they were trying to manufacture kind of more on structured game. I think it was just the nature of it. As you said, that, that first 25-30 was frenetic. I think Gary Ringrose was, was making line breaks kind of left, right and centre and Ireland were getting a lot of front football um, and by nature that then there's a little bit more space to probably express yourself especially in that, in that first half but there was definitely a couple that probably didn't come, come off in that second half I'm not sure that Conor Murray won late on in the game um, back on the inside is, is started as an offload but, but that was definitely something that didn't work for Ireland but it, it didn't seem to me that there was a, a huge shift away from their kind of their usual attacking framework Okay. Yeah, you, you you mentioned that turnover there, and it was just noticeable that they had that 15 turnovers conceded is a big number for them, and it was really damaging. Even the rook security, there was one where Furlong just kind of looks at Jimeno coming around the back and picking it up, and Gardner has, has given the cue for him to, to go ahead and do that. It, it was strange. There was some fatigued thinking maybe from Ireland at times, and I want to ask you about the, the ball in play because we expected it to be extremely high in this game it, it only ended up being 39 minutes which is certainly no laughing matter but not as high as we thought but you've kind of dug into that a little bit more and the ball was probably in play for long stints uh, and that might have been yeah. a, an effect on Ireland I think it's those clusters of, of high ball and play time that, that really kind of take an impact and, and, and the second half was definitely very different to the first half. I think ball and play in that second half was 22 minutes compared to 17 in the first half. So a five minute increase. And and in that second half, I think there was four instances where the ball and play was just about over two and a half minutes. There, there was one ball and play that I think went on for three minutes, 20 seconds. I think it was that third possession of the second half. And, and Ireland weren't coming out on top in any of those periods. I think there might have been one example where Carney hits that left foot kick through in the second half and Japan take the ball out of play. But other than that, it most definitely would have been a policy of, of Japan and their coaching staff to, to have those clusters of high ball and play time just to fatigue fatigue Ireland's forwards and backs and make it that kind of expansive high tempo game and it definitely was was prevalent just before half time and just after half time those those big clusters of, of ball and play time uh, where where Japan were using full width of the pitch and massive amount of ball movement that undoubtedly took its toll on Ireland in that last 20 minutes 
Yeah, for sure. And, and Japan really did manage that. I, I definitely underestimated their fitness and their readiness for a, a test like this. My feeling was that they really hadn't played enough rugby of this standard to, to, to get past Ireland. I definitely called this game completely wrong, actually. And I overread that, that Russia performance. But they did look extremely physically powerful. You mentioned even the mall defence, and you'd almost expect Ireland to to bully them in that area. They were excellent. Their their tackling was obviously huge. Guys like Himeno, the tight head, Koo, Inagaki, James Moore made 24 tackles, and they ended up winning a lot of those collisions. That was a surprise, as well as the, the actual athletic and aerobic fitness around the pitch. Like, you've had a better sense of it being on this side of the world for... Uh, for for the build up, I guess they they essentially didn't play a lot of Super Rugby these guys, and it was a, a strange call. I, I felt I was wondering what is Jamie Joseph doing, but it seems his plan has worked out particularly well. What what was the build up like for them? Yeah, I was actually funny enough. I, I met up with uh, Marty Veal for a coffee this afternoon, and he was he was a Sunwolves forwards coach uh, last year, um, and he reckons the Sunwolves used seventy two players in Super Rugby in a season just gone wow. by, just just to kind of make up for uh, their missing Japanese players. So, essentially, from the start of Super Rugby, and uh, none of their national players, very intermittently, may have taken part in the odd game or two, but essentially they've been in national camp for nine months. Um, so and with the caliber of coaches of, of, of Jamie Joseph, um, Corey Brown, and obviously Tony Brown, they're just exceptional coaches that prepared the team exceptionally well. And and the profile of their players, we talked a little bit about it before, like the influence of, of, of your leeches, Maffies in the forwards. Uh, Himino, I think, has been a revelation at six, just the carry he can give. Mm. And then you mix that with the ball skills of, of all their forwards. I, I think from one to eight, they all looked extremely comfortable on the ball. And and how I think every time a Japanese forward got the ball, he had, he had at least one tip option on his outside or he had that link option out the back. So they were utilizing their skills exceptionally well with their ball movement. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't one-off carries. It was tips, links going out the back and, and creating a huge amount of ball movement um, for Ireland to cope with. And, and I think what, while it looks like a kind of chaotic, chaotic no, nature to their attacking framework, it, there's actually a lot of structure to it and how they position their forwards around their, the pitch to give them stretch in their attack, I think is, is really well thought out of from uh, Tony Brown. Yeah, absolutely. Real joy to kind of watch back in particular when you can have a little glance back and, and check out how to get into that shape, even how players move around the pitch. Leach had a couple of huge work rate moments to get into those wide channels and, and be a threat there. Even when he first came on, you think of that turnover off the line out when he gets all the way to the opposite 15 meter channel and, and makes an offload there. That passing you mentioned is, was really interesting because looking at the numbers, Ireland's forwards, I think, had 27 passes. Japan's had 23. But the quality of those passes from Japan's forwards, as you mentioned, it was tips, it was links, it was early in possession. It was it was kind of pouncing while the iron was hot and actually pressuring Ireland. Whereas sometimes with the tip on some Ireland, you wonder if they're just kind of going through the motions and you've seen them get, they get smashed a couple of times when they're tipping passes on. Um, overall, Japan had 201 passes to Ireland's 166, which given there was roughly a 50% share, maybe again tells you about the, the quality of, of their passing. I thought Nakamura's pass for the try was just a beautiful bit of skill and obviously the advantage was playing, so you can go and throw that, but Lafayette's hands as well uh, were really excellent. From a defensive point of view though, Ireland will be disappointed with conceding that. I know the exit, they they botched the exit where Chris Farrell runs into stand, a really uncharacteristic, simple error. And, and then from there, they, they couldn't cope. Um, what did you see from that side of it? 
Yeah, it's really smart. I think Japan have rolled out that right-hand scrum play before where they, they played that midfield target and then uh, the nine, Nagari, bounces back and plays a little uh, switch with uh, the blindside winger, Lamecki, back through the ruck. Actually, to be fair to Conor Murray, he, he's obviously seen the play before and he reacts really well. He's folded to the open side but checks back late to stop Lamecki, who's probably going to go under the post. But again, it's an example of Japan playing back against the grain, coming back to a short side runner, then they pick and go back down that short side channel. And what it does is it prevents the, the fold around the corner, um, which which probably robbed Ireland or a number two. But I, I think Adi Farr will be disappointed because essentially two phases later, it's a four on three. So four Japanese players against three Irish defenders and, and in that situation when you're five metres from your line you just got to blitz hard and leave the last attacker on the touchline if they go over the top top of you all well and good but I think Murray and Carney just needed to go hard at the the second and third attackers and make um, Tamora play it over the top so to go soft there and just allow the hands I think Andy Farrell would be disappointed in and was probably kind of the story of Ireland's defence as it progressed when we're talking about that ball movement of the Japanese forwards especially off 10 um, it's a real sign that Ireland's defence couldn't get off the line if the forwards are having time to play little tip passes and link passes off a three off a three pass sequence because it's gone nine ten ten to a forward and they've still afforded the time to play that next pass it means that Ireland's line speed was significantly compromised by the stretch in Japan's attack yeah absolutely if Gareth Davies is around you don't get that first pass away really do you we'll get <laughs> no, into that very, uh, very soon but just to finish up on Ireland I guess an update for people they've had, had a couple of press conferences now they're going to change a lot they're naming their team tomorrow Tuesday for the Thursday's game and they're obviously going to mix up completely as they always would have done but there's definitely a sense that those players coming in now need to provide a real bit of energy from your point of view own where does this leave them do you still feel that if they can fix what they'll see as very fixable stuff and if they can I guess deal with that high tempo and those sequence, uh, long sequences again if they can deal with that better where, where do you see them moving on because we expect them obviously to beat Russia and beat Samoa well but the quarterfinal there's probably a, a lot of doubt and pessimism around that what's your point of view now after that game? Yeah and I, I think Ireland will have a very clear plan going into Japan. They, they would have prepped for Japan probably before the World Cup even started in terms of how, how they were going to play against them. And, and it's going to be a completely different challenge and more of an attritional battle. Um, and, and Ireland, as you mentioned, are going to make some changes. And I, I think, like, it's funny, if you look back to the Japan game, there's little momentum shifts. Like, I think Ireland robbed two lineouts, but the ball bounced straight back into Shadahoria's hands. Um, there was the Omani kick down the right-hand side where it looks like Matsushima is trapped on his own try line and ends up beating two players and makes a 50-meter break. And it's just like all the momentum just seemed to go with Japan in that second half. And that can shift easily back to Ireland on Thursday night, get off to a good start again. As we just said, they're accurate with their structured attack, which we know Ireland are extremely good at. And they get back into that kind of structured game where where they can get their forwards into the game. I think what Joe Schmidt would be very conscious of was their tight forwards that normally give Ireland a lot of go forward. Had If their metres game, game combined between the tight forwards was extremely low against Japan. So they'll be looking for to get a lot more go forward out of their tight five and, and cause some uh, Russian defenders some problems along with, with some kind of um, intricate back plays. Yeah, really looking forward to that and seeing how they respond 
Um, we thought that that was going to be by some distance the best game of the weekend. It probably was still, but for many it was Australia against Wales, which was an absolute thriller. So much quality attack. It was obviously 29-25 win for Wales in the end, but it went right down to the wire. Uh, and there's loads of interesting little tactical and technical bits to, to pick out of this game. I guess just overall, first of all, did you feel like Wales were worthy winners? Because uh, they did have to work very hard for it at the end. Liam Williams coming up with that turnover. I thought they were just exceptionally efficient with all their scoring opportunities. Uh, they registered 29 points, but they only made seven line breaks in the entire game. Um, so the two the two drop goals were huge. They kind of set the tone straight from the restart with that uh, that long kick into Australia's 22, and then. Noticing that Australia had under-resourced the breakdown, Ken Owens does a really, really good job of kind of rooking through. And then two phases later, Bigger's in the pocket, it's 3-0 uh, to Wales before before Australia even blinked. So they got off to, I guess, the ideal start. And I just managed the game really well. Australia looked threatening at times in that first half, but the turnover count, I think it was 17 by the end of the game. And a lot of those were in the first half where they're either losing the ball in contact or kind of silly knock-ons, which were kind of denying Australia momentum into the game. And then I thought, like you're talking about those little ta tactical uh, bits to the game, I thought Australia definitely looked like they expected Wales to kick more than they did. Uh, I think in that mm. first... 25 minutes Wales had only kicked the ball six times and two of those were attacking kicks one of which led to the Hadley Parks try uh, off, off the kick pass from Bigger so Wales were probably not kicking as much as Australia had expected and Australia were holding holding three back in backfield to, to kind of be ready to counter to that Welsh kicking game and, and what it ended up doing was compromise, compromise Australia's frontline defence and, and Wales actually showed some really good width in their attack. They work hard on kind of filling those 15-meter channels with at least three three players, including one of their back rows. And, and that stretch of attack caused Australia issues earlier on. I think it, it, it caused Australia, or it caught Australia kind of by surprise. And, and uh, Wales were getting momentum into the game through that kind of, that wide attacking game off kick return. Yeah, definitely. It did. It did surprise me. Like those forwards making really accurate passes. Wayne Wright, Alan Wynne Jones. What can that man not do? But they were really yeah. integral in, in shifting the ball into the space, and it was great to see because we've talked in the past about the Welsh attack maybe being their weakness, and, and without Anscombe they might struggle there. But it was really encouraging from that point of view to build that that twenty three eight halftime lead. You mentioned the first drop goal there. Also, really interesting to see them use that as a tool and a tactic you get into the 22 and it's all about getting your return if you can put your 10 in a, a decent position in the pocket and and get a, a, a bit of momentum with your carries then it, it makes so much sense i know they missed one but patchell had another um after bigger's early one really clever stuff and clinical when you get down there it must be really dispiriting for the defense to concede three points so quickly i thought it was also interesting kind of overlapping from the ireland game that we're seeing the, the penalty advantage tries I think in the Ireland game all three were on pen advantage weren't they and and the first, yeah. uh, first a couple of tries in this game as well where Adam Ashley Cooper finishes off from from the cross kick and Parks as well in a very similar circumstance you're seeing teams be really efficient with with those uh, those opportunities and I guess it makes sense that's when you want to want to take the perceived risk I guess 
Yeah, and a shot to nothing really with with kind of uh, the security of knowing you've got a penalty advantage. But yeah, I thought Hadley Parks. If you if you watch where he worked from, I think he was on the left hand side of the twenty two and works hard to to get to that right touch line and kind of catches Carbetti out of position. Carbetti's probably too far infield, so as the kick comes across, he's he's in a poor position to take it. And and Hadley Parks does a really good job. And then yeah, um, Ashley Coopers comes off the back of a Karevi break. I think he was. As usual for Australia, he was was definitely the focal point of their attack. I think he had uh, outside of um, Dane Helipetti had the most meters gained, uh, most defenders beaten, had six defenders beaten, and, and he is key to Australia's attack. Um, I would kind of in the lead up to that try was was crucial in that line break. So uh, a lot was still revolving around Karevi in that first half and and into the second half. Yeah, he's an absolute beast. We'll come back to that specific incident maybe a little later on, but. I'm just looking at your notes that you sent me before we came on. It says Davies defense sniper. I'm looking at my notes. It says Gareth Davies defense shooter. <laughs> he really is making an art form of this, isn't he? It was it was incredible to see how effective it was. Obviously picking off a try, he just missed another probable try. Um, and he had another interceptor earlier on against, I think it was Foley's pass. He seems yeah. to be just getting the timing so bang on. It's a lovely weapon for them. Yeah, and I met I met Sean Byrne during the week, and he was very aware of uh, Davis's threat there. He he'd seen him do it in, in previous games, so Australia were aware of the threat. But the first one was even off ten, so it's gone Genia to Foley. Davis is kind of defending in that six seven channel. Australia have Australia don't play a lot of shape to be fair, but they've set up Nasserani and Latu outside of Foley, and and the wise play there from Foley is just to play the short ball to Nasserani, who can then either tip to Latu or, or go out the back to O'Connor but Foley Foley takes it to the line and plays a wide flat pass across Nasserani and Davis who must spend a huge amount of time with Sean Edwards uh, from an analysis perspective just to be able yeah. to understand to understand the cue of the shape then to have the pace to be able to exploit that kind of ball in air time and, and come away with the intercept I thought that was an early warning to Australia if James O'Connor isn't in that kind of second playmaker position out the back of that forward pod when when Davis intercepts the ball Davis is going 55 metres to score and that's only only six minutes into the game and then yeah as you discussed that second one is is off the back of the patch of three points um, Australia restart short Ashley Cooper does exceptionally well to win the ball back and kind of gives Australia a breakdown just on that right touchline maybe about a metre in and instantly Davis goes into that five defender position. Um, Genia picks and take crucially takes about two steps out of the ball and looks to play the middle forward. So they've got a forward set either side of um, Scott Seo. I think it's Nasserani on the outside and um, Rad on the inside. And Genia just kind of does one of his little trademark scoots and tries to play that flat ball to um, Scott Seo. But again... Dave is there's there's conjecture that he's offside, but that wide picture shows he's definitely onside and nah, and read on. yeah he's definitely onside and reads it really well and and picks off Genia for what really is the the crucial point at that stage. I think it it, it gives him a is it a twenty three eight lead going into halftime and and puts Wells in in a really strong position. Yeah, definitely. Just coming like sorry, I'm indulging my nerdy side here. It, it, just coming off the touchline. Like it is a long pass, he kind of, it's probably 10, 15 meters. It was interesting that we saw in the warm-ups, the Aussies were hitting the first forward in that three-man pod and sweeping the pass from there. And I know that's something that Dave Vessels has done 
in um in the Melbourne Rebels as well like it is a nice way to mix it up is is that pass is it slightly risky if you know there's going to be that threat shooting up that hard and, and to go that long with the pass I think I think that's the key point Murray knowing that there's a threat there um, mm. traditionally against a team because it's from unstructured possession uh, the, the Welsh defence isn't set there's actually a huge seam between uh, Davis and Hadley Parks who's trying to come in to defend outside Davis so I think I think Willie's seen a gap he's kind of probably forgotten to take into account what Davis is, tends to do off that position and tries to play um, CO through a hole which it, against most teams I think from that scenario probably would have worked but yeah with the way Davis defends off an edge there it, it was it was definitely inadvisable mm-hmm. and and Australia paid the ultimate price conceding seven points yeah for sure and in fairness again he had some masterful touches as well someone was kicking even with um, under under real pressure was, was excellent a guy who obviously had a big influence on it was Matt Tamua coming off the bench for, for Foley like one of his first involvements was the Dane Hale Petty try where he had three touches he carries to the line kind of narrows up the defence gets an offload away he's back on his feet then I think he offloads on, on the next phase and, and then actually carries himself and nearly scores the try uh, Pocock obviously offloading in midfield then to, to finish out for, for Dane Hale Petty what did you make of Tamua's influence and, and I, I guess Foley was on the pitch when there was a little bit of looseness in the attack and maybe some um, errors from him individually even yeah, I, I think definitely in that second half, there was a, a focus for Australia on a kind of like one pass play kind of theme, take the ball strong to the line. I crucially, uh, as you discussed in the build up to that tray, a build up to the Dane Halo Petty try, I think there was four offloads and there was three one man rucks. And that's something that Australia work exceptionally hard as, as I said, they, they don't want to play to a shape. They want an extremely unstructured game. So if they can offload either through contact or off the ground before a ruck even happens, that's when their attack is at its most dangerous. And, and really for a team like Wales, who kind of thrive off that kind of point to point where they can set off a ruck, launch off the line again, it really takes away their line speed. And when Tamua came on, he, he, he was essentially carrying as a centre. He also plays as a 12. And it was just mm. a really direct carry shift the ball quickly, direct carry, move it again. And, and, and that try of Dane Halepes is exactly how Australia want to play. And, and it was a kind of potent eight-phase passage that Wales really had no answer to. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out because we felt it was Lilia Fano and Foley battling for it, who obviously did a good job. It is nice to see the Karevi and, and James O'Connor partnership showing real promise and seems to be growing. O'Connor is a real playmaker. His game has completely changed from what we saw from him when he was younger. And Karevi, as you, as you mentioned, is just a wrecking ball. He was involved in probably the most controversial incident of the game and one that f- sparked Michael Checa. We know he likes to have a go referees the odd time. Um, and he was in flying form after this one. I'm sure everyone's seen the comments. I'm sure everyone's seen the incident with, with Reese Patchell where he gets penalised for, for leading with the elbow. It costs the Wallabies three points and obviously proves pretty decisive. I have real sympathy for Karevi here because he's bracing himself for the contact. His elbow to me and his forearm to me look quite tight to his body. There's maybe a bit of separation there, but like, are you judging that with a, a little measuring tape now as mil- millimetres between the, the, the arm and the, the body? Look, it's technically probably a penalty, but... I found it tough on him and his, his arm does slip up on, towards the throat but I kind of agreed with Michael Hooper saying look it's poor pack, tackle technique he, he's put himself in a, in a really bad position um, and how are we supposed to brace ourselves into that contact if we can't use our, our arms in front of us what, what was your take on it Owen? 
Yeah, huge sympathy for Karevi, I think, as you've said, and how, as Hooper pointed out, uh, Patchell's standing tall, which is if you're teaching any kid how to tackle, it's, it's definitely not the way you want him to tackle. And uh, Karevi really has nowhere to go. Um, so it's poor, poor tackle tech from uh, Pratchell and even even the one earlier on where bigger bigger goes off trying yeah. to tackle Karevi head in the wrong position and I think if anything is to come out of this World Cup it's just to to teach the tackler appro- appropriate tackle technique to avoid all these issues like high shoulder shots to the head is generally unless the ball carrier is falling into the tackle is generally from poor tackle technique so if we can if we get I, and I guess this is what World Rugby is trying to do they're trying to lower the tackle height and and by improving tackle technique and lowering that height will will promote probably a safer environment for the tackler, but also probably promote a, a, a more exciting brand of rugby with obviously more offload opportunities because those kind of standing tall high shots are, are to try and stop offloads, uh, ch- choke choke tacklers up like Wales do that extremely well where they try and hold ball carriers up and, and cause those, those malls that... Uh, that Les Kiss brought into the Irish kind of system, I guess, almost 10 years ago. So I think if we can promote a, a lower tackle height and, and a good quality uh, tackle technique from the tackler to avoid those concussions, because at the end of the day, it's the tackler, not the ball carrier, uh, coming off worse when it comes to these concussions. Yeah, totally agree. And it's good that that's in the spotlight. I think that like with the development of insanely aggressive line speed, that's been an issue that the tackle technique hasn't come with that. And you're seeing a lot of defenders put themselves in, in poor situations. I remember actually when Jack Nienaber took over the defence in Munster, I think they had eight concussions for wingers in the first, let's say, two months. I think the wingers really struggled because they were asked to put so much line speed on, but did the technique come with it? That was an issue that they had to address at the time. I know Munster did address that and, and the wingers started to get better at it and therefore much safer with it. So I think it's good to have that tackle tech um, in the spotlight again. I guess just to finish up on, on the Wallabies and Wales, the Wallabies come out of this obviously with a, a loss. They were fuming afterwards, but they did have those 17 turnovers in this game. There was a real looseness to their attack and you just felt if they could hang on a little bit more and even some of them were after like half busts you think of Hale Petty going through and the ball slipping out of his grasp or Hooper making a carry twice actually he's he kind of knocks on the ground you feel if they can hang on to that they can really open teams up what's your sense of where they are because it looks like all going to plan they're going to be playing England in the quarterfinals yeah and that England game will be a huge test for them I think their recent record against England is particularly poor and uh, our kind of England's solid play is probably uh, the complete opposite to how Australia are trying to play and, and if, if England can create that really suffocating uh, structured um, game where it's a huge kick battle um, I, th- I think Australia could genuinely struggle but if Australia can manage to, to keep it an un- unstructured fast game then I think that's their best opportunity but it's interesting Australia's set piece is going really well for them I know that was one of Cech's frustrations last night was he didn't feel that kind of rewarded um, Australia's dominance in scrum time and um, I, I think that is a, definitely a weapon for Australia along with their mall um, so it's kind of them getting the balance between that kind of set piece game which they're, they're getting a little bit of payout that unstructured fast offloading game low rook count um, and it's just getting that balance right as well as as kicking on their terms and kicking effectively when they do kick. Yeah, absolutely. Wales, meanwhile, rumble on and fair play to Warren Gatlin. He's done it again. He's turned a, um, a negative into a positive and, and rallied the team and they look in really good nick. They look confident. 
there's real um, belief in that group as always and they're physically fit with a bit of a tack to go with it now which is promising for them they look like they're going to be real contenders just to run briefly through the other games since we since we last had a, a podcast South Africa hammering Namibia 57-3 that was actually the first 50 plus pointer in this World Cup I think World Rugby have been delighted that it's been more competitive in that sense we're seeing those shocks which is brilliant for the tournament but this was just too easy for South Africa I think Razi Erasmus was actually in the changing room watching the Japan-Ireland game as the box warmed up that probably gives you a sense of what they expected um, Shock Brits was a, a, a joy to watch really at number 8 in this he's 38 and still going strong they had 4 tries from the mall which was interesting because in the Argentina game they beat Tonga 28-12 um, they had 2 more tries Montoya the hooker getting a, tr- uh, a hat-trick hat-trick. one off a pick and go but the um, the, the try scoring from hookers so far they're actually the the position who have scored most tries in the World Cup so far 16 tries in, in 10 match days right wings I think are on 13 left wings on 14 what's your sense of why that's happening so much Owen is that because we're getting mismatches between top level test sides and, and t- teams who haven't played at this level or, or, or where do you see that coming from yeah I think I think it's definitely a focus in the World Cup especially those tier 1 v tier 2 nations where I think set, set piece dominance has been really apparent and, and their ability to kind of I guess uh, take take away mall tries when entering the 22 has been as you said it's, it's a huge stat with the number of tries from hookers and and it's kind of these things kind of come in and out of vogue don't they um, kind of it was um, something that a lot of teams were scoring tries off a couple of seasons ago and, and I guess when you get into a World Cup uh, it's probably the, isn't it the longest period a national team has together in terms of pre-World Cup camp and into camp and I get you become like a little bit of a club side where you can spend a huge amount of time on, on something like a mall whereas when you're in a, a November international or or even Six Nations where there is there is time together it's probably not a, as a, a huge amount of time like a world cup gives you to mm. to build those connections and and you can see teams like the brumbies and super rugby they get a huge amount of payout of spending an enormous amount of time in training at, at mastering their mall and and it, it pays massive dividends for them yeah absolutely i think tonga will have some gripes in this game they had that brilliant vianu try from kubravuna's unbelievable one-handed offload the finish from vianu was absolutely superb as well i don't know did you see the lavanini tackle on Halefanua in the le- in the left corner right on half time as Tonga trailing I think twenty eight seven at the time. Did you see that one on where he he goes in with the the left shoulder? Maybe looks like he doesn't fully wrap up. And I know a lot of people were outraged by this one. Yeah, I just, I just saw the replay on Twitter and yeah, definitely rightly feel aggrieved that um, there was at least probably a penalty try and a card awarded there. Um, there was definitely no use of the arms and and frustrating, especially for I guess a tier two nation that. They're the kind of calls need to go your way if you're going to kind of pull up, pull off a, an upset against a team like Argentina. Yeah, we're still waiting for that refereeing consistency, maybe, and for them to nail all those those yeah. uh, big decisions. The last one was Georgia beating Uruguay 37, uh, 33-7, rather. No follow-up to the shock for Uruguay, but hopefully they'll have another good day. Um, we're going to leave it there for now, but Owen, thanks as ever for the brilliant insight. Always good to have a nerdy chat with you and hope people enjoyed it. I'll catch you down here in Kobe on Thursday. See you down there, mate. Looking forward to it. Cheers. Cheers. Now, do we feel any better after that? Thanks to Murray Kinsley and Owen Toolan for really letting us eavesdrop in on a conversation that I'd said they were going to have whether there was a mic around or not. The 42 Rugby Weekly will be back with the full show on Thursday after Ireland have a rattle at Russia in what really should be a bounce-back win. Thanks as always to Volkswagen, proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. 
Thanks to you for listening. Take care. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it's coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and he 